0: Uh, The first three years that I was out of college, I lived in Budapest, Hungary, and it was right after communism had fallen in Eastern Europe, and so it was a time of huge change for the Hungarians. Up to around 1990, Hungary had been oriented toward Russia. Now in 1992, it was rapidly reorienting itself toward Western Europe and the United States. For years, Hungarians had learned Russian in school. Now they were clamoring to learn English. For years, it was the Communist Party who had controlled the economy and provided jobs for everyone. Now, entrepreneurs were free to start their own businesses. For years, everyone or everything from cars to apartment buildings to grocery stores and fashions were communist-style. Now, new European, Western European looking products and styles were showing up everywhere. For years, Hungarians had to worry about what they said to whom because if they were critical of the government, word might get back to the party and there could be consequences. But now, Hungarians were getting used to the idea that they enjoyed free speech and that nobody they knew was actually a secret informant who might turn them in. The changes were immense A whole way of life was ending and a whole new way of life was being born. In Romans 5 and 6, Paul has been declaring that something like that has begun going on for the whole world. When Jesus Christ came and died on the cross and rose again, these changes began. Let's call the old reality that that Paul described as the old age and the new era that began with Jesus Christ as the age to come. In Romans 5, Paul said that the founding father of the old age had been a guy named Adam. And this new age had begun by the coming of an, or rather, sorry, that was the old age. The new age has begun with the founding of a new, or with the coming of a new founding father, Jesus Christ. Adam had led the old world into an attitude that that following in God's way was purely optional. That we were free to worship whoever we wanted, uh, to make our own moral choices and judgments for ourselves, which wound up meaning that we could hurt who we wanted, we could take advantage of who we wanted. And Paul called this whole approach to life sin. Jesus Christ came to... uh, call people back to God to recognize that God's way is best. It's the way of love. It's the way for caring for others and for God's creation, for providing justice for the weak and the oppressed. And Paul calls this way righteousness. Paul explained that the way of sin just ultimately leads to death, but that Christ came providing a a, a way for new and eternal life. Paul also explained in chapter 6 how we are able to leave behind the old age and begin a new life in the new age. We do it, he said, by putting our faith in Jesus Christ and being baptized into Christ's name so as to place ourselves in Christ. That way what's true of Christ becomes true of us. On the cross... Christ died to the old age, died to sin, died to death, and through his resurrection, Christ became alive again in the new age, the age of righteousness, the age of new and unending life. And if we are in Christ, then all of that becomes true of us as well. One of the things Paul said along the way was surprising, though. And that was that Paul unexpectedly placed God's law on the old age side of the equation. Doesn't that surprise you? I mean, you would think that if sin is in the old age, then obeying God's law would be in the new age. But that's not how Paul draws it up. And and Paul knows that this requires some explaining. And so now in today's passage, Paul's going to pause his argument in Romans and explain why he said back in chapter 614 that if we have moved with Christ from the old age into the new age, we are no longer under the law, but under grace. And to explain why Paul puts law in the old age, not in the old age, yes, in the old age, (laughs) and not in the new, Paul takes an analogy from marriage in our passage this morning. For example, when my wife Anne married me, she became legally bound to me. Legally, both in terms of the laws of Washington, D.C., where we got married, and also in terms of God's moral law, Anne belongs to me. I belong to her. We are to be faithful to one another. And that law that binds us together is unseverable until death do us part. She's not free to go off with another man, just like I'm not free to go off with another woman. But if death did do us part, then that would all change, right? If I died, Anne would be free from the law that binds her to me. She'd be free to marry another man if she wanted to. Death changes things. Because as Paul puts it in verse 1, the law has authority over someone only as long as that person lives. Once death occurs, the law's authority to hold together a marriage no longer applies. And in our passage, Paul takes that analogy for marriage and he applies it to the relationship between God's people and the Old Testament law. Paul's saying that it used to be that you were bound to God's law. God's law, written in the first five books of the Old Testament particularly, it had force, it had authority over your life, and nothing could change that. If you were one of God's people, you were wedded to God's law. You were bound to keep it till death do us part. But guess what, Paul says? When Christ died, he died to that law. And if you are in Christ, you died with him. And when you died with him, you were set free from that law. And when you were raised with Christ, you entered into a new age in which the law no longer holds sway. Just like once my Hungarian friends lived in the old age of communism and they entered then the new age of democracy. And when they did, the old laws of communism no longer applied. They no longer had force or authority. So, Paul says, the laws of the old age no longer have authority in the new age. Verse 4. So, my brothers and sisters, you also died to the law through the body of Christ that you might belong to another, to him who was raised from the dead. Listen to that language. You might belong to another. To another. This doesn't come through in, in the Greek, uh, in the English, but, but in the original Greek, belong to another is the same wording that Paul used to describe a wife marrying another man. If she does, she belongs to another. It's marriage language, it's intimacy language. In other words, Christ has set us free from the law so that we might belong to him and be his bride. No longer serving a book of rules, but living in a dynamic, loving relationship with a person. A person who just happens to be the king of the new age in which we have now begun to live. That reminds me of the story Cinderella. We all know that story, right? In her old life, Cinderella was basically enslaved to her wicked stepmother and her cruel stepsisters. And they made her do all the worst chores. They made her work from dawn to dusk. They took perverse pleasure in making sure she never got anything good, that all of her hopes were disappointed, that that her life was miserable drudgery. But then she meets the handsome prince, right? They dance at the ball, sparks begin to fly, he's so taken with her, he just has to marry her. And so he goes to great lengths to to find her and to, to make her his bride. And then the two of them live in the palace happily ever after. Yay! <clears throat> now in C- Cinderella's new life in the palace married to the prince she's set free from the authority of her stepmother. She's no longer enslaved as she was in her, own, her old life. She belongs to the prince now. She's living a new life. And that's what Paul says Christ does for us. To, to wed us to Christ. Christ though had to do more than than just figure out where we lived and whether our foot would fit into a glass slipper. No, to wed us to himself, Christ had to give his own life for us, to set us free from slavery to sin and to death and to law, so that we could live a new life and belong to him. And Christ loved us so much that he was willing to do that for us. He heaped grace on us. He forgave all of our sins. He sacrificed himself so that could happen, rescuing us from condemnation to death and bringing us lovingly to himself. So Paul says we are no longer under sin, under law, but under grace. Paul's saying more than that we are no longer under the penalty of the law. He's also saying that we are no longer under the demands of the law. We we no longer we are no longer required to keep the laws, commands, and requirements. Now now this requires some explaining because Paul's writing, among others, to Jews here in the church at Rome, and um, the Jews know, as everyone should know, that the law is good. The law wasn't really anything like a wicked stepmother just trying to make our lives as miserable as possible. No, if you know the Psalms, then you know that the psalmist sings about how delightful God's laws are. How God's commands teach us to live in ways that are good, how they can make us wise and and set our feet on good paths, paths of blessing. So how can Paul say that we're set free from these teachings, these commands, these demands, which, which are a good thing and which came straight from God's mouth? Well, in verses 5 and 6, Paul begins to explain, and he'll explain further in the rest of chapter 7 that we'll look at next week. But what does Paul say here in verses 5 to 6? Well, depending on what your, the translation that you have, he says we used to live under the control of the sinful nature, or in the realm of the flesh. Literally, Paul says we used to live in the flesh. And what Paul is getting at here is that in the old age, the flesh was in control. And what's the flesh? Well, it's our old humanity. It's our, our weakness. It's our bentness towards sin, which we inherited from our original father, Adam. And so Paul says in verse 5 that when we were in the realm of the flesh, that the sinful passions that were aroused by the law were at work in us so that we bore fruit to death. We were living in the old age, which was the realm of the flesh, and and, and we heard God's good law, but instead of it teaching us to do what was right, it too often made us want to do what was wrong. <laughs> you probably heard this saying, rules are meant to be broken. You know, the boy, boy walks past an apple tree a hundred times and, and, and never even thinks to pick an apple. But as soon as the neighbor puts a sign in front of the tree which says, do not pick the apples, what does the boy start thinking about? <laughs> he starts thinking about apples. Why aren't I supposed to pick the apples? They must be some really good apples. Boy, I'm kind of hungry. They'd they'd never know if I just picked one. And and then if he has a friend with him, his friend is like, I dare you to pick an apple, right? (laughs) There's something exciting about stealing forbidden fruit and and crossing a line we're not supposed to cross, just to see what might happen. The law arouses our, our sinful passions and brings them to life. The the famous historical writer James Michener gives a good example of this in his book, Hawaii. He tells about Abner Hale, a 19th century missionary who went to Hawaii, who was trying to help Hawaii's um, tribal royalty to institute some much-needed laws on the island as this island converted from paganism to Christianity. And one rule that, that Hale insisted on was no adultery but which adultery, they asked. In Hawaii, we have 23 different kinds of adultery. (laughs) You what? Abner gasps. And this would be our problem, they explain. If we simply said there shall be no adultery without indicating which kind, everyone who heard would reason, well, they don't mean our kind of adultery, they mean the other 22 kinds. But on the other hand, if we list out all 23 kinds, one after another, someone will surely say, hmm, we never heard of that kind before, let's try it. And things would be worse than they had been before. That's the problem with making rules, right? Either we find a way to wiggle around them, that's what lawyers are for. Or more to Paul's point, not all lawyers. (laughs) More to Paul's point, making the law itself, drawing a line in the sand, raises our curiosity or our rebellious streak, and we find ourselves just wanting to cross that line. So Paul says in the old age, the age when we were ruled by the flesh, the law didn't solve our sin problem. If anything, it made it worse. And when it wasn't making it worse, it was still helpless to make it better. Because the law is powerless. You can think of the law as like a mirror. It it can show you that big zit on your nose, but, but the mirror can't do anything to get rid of that zit for you. It can show you what you're doing is wrong, but it can't do anything to help you do what's right. Or to put it another way, the law is like a, going to the doctor and getting a diagnosis. The diagnosis can tell you what it's wrong, but, but by itself it can't make you better. You need medicine, you need treatment. The law has no power to conquer the flesh, to, to conquer our sinful passions. The law can only show us our sin and condemn us to death and lock us in slavery and judgment. But the good news is, that's not the end of the story. Because Christ provided another solution to our problem. And Paul gives it in verse 6. He says, But now, by dying to what once bound us, we have been released from the law so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit, not in the old way of the written code. Now, in the new age, God has set us free from the law. We are still and all the more expected to live righteously. We're to bear fruit to God or for God, verse 4, but not anymore by keeping a set of rules, a written code. Rather, God has now given us a new way to live a life of love and goodness. By walking by the Spirit, verse 6. In chapter 8, Paul's going to really elaborate on what this looks like. But for now, he's just introducing the idea. In the age to come, he says, spirit replaces law. In the old age, God, God wrote down how we were to live in black and white. And he said, do it. Keep these rules. But in the new age, God has set us free from the flesh And and set his own spirit in our hearts to give us new hearts which want to please Christ, which want to learn to live in in ways that are good and healthy and whole, that want to live in sync with the life of the new age. You can think of the difference that the spirit makes compared to the law as like going to a parent-teacher conference. When you were a kid in school, you had to keep the rules. But then you grew up, you had kids of your own, and you go back eventually to school for a parent-teacher conference. And uh, you look on the wall, and the rules are still there, posted. You know, do not talk while the teacher is talking. Do not shoot spitballs. Do not drop books out the window, right? Stuff like that. The, the rules are still there, but now as a parent, as an adult, you're no longer under any of them. They don't apply to you anymore. But you still don't break them, right? <laughs> Why not? because now you've finally matured the goodness that the rules were trying to enforce in the behavior of children has now become a part of your heart and your character and so you naturally do from the heart what you used to need rules to require you to do that's what the holy spirit is doing for our hearts now It's not like the Old Testament law doesn't have anything to say about this process. Paul still quotes the law from time to time in his letters. And we would still do well to read it. Because it can still teach us a lot about God's mind and heart. About what pleases God. It can teach us a lot about how to live good and wise lives. But we're not under that law's authority anymore. So after we read it, we turn to the Spirit to teach our hearts how to live out the goodness that the law points toward. And the Spirit actually has the power to change our hearts so that we want to do and are able to do what's good. Now here's the practical question. Because we're pretty familiar with what it's like to keep a set of rules. uh, Or to not keep them, as the case may be. (laughs) But what in the world does it look like practically to live by the Spirit? Well, let me share a little bit from my own experience. The the Spirit does two things for us. First, He guides us in how we should live. This is what the law used to do. It it told us right and wrong, it guided us. But second, the, the Spirit does something which the law could never do, and that's the Spirit gives us the power to actually live that way. So the Spirit gives us guidance, and the Spirit gives us empowerment. Let's think about guidance. I've experienced guidance, the Spirit's guidance, in three ways that I can think of. One way that the Spirit guides is that when I read the Bible, or I read a a book, or listen to a talk about God, I I often will get an insight, or a a conviction, or an inspiration of how God wants me to live. Because this book is the Spirit's word. And, And so, He speaks to us through it. And, and he teaches me about love as I read it. He, he teaches me about trusting God. He teaches me about being faithful and, and loving justice. He, he gives me a vision of God and of God's view of the world and, and how I'm to live. It's not the rules. It's not rules that the Spirit is giving me to keep. But rather it's a new perspective on life. It's a new heart attitude. It's a new kind of character. He's calling me to be a certain type of person. The second way that the Spirit guides is, is that sometimes I feel a desire to do good. Do something good. To pick up the phone and call someone to encourage them. To uh, maybe help or provide money to someone I know is struggling. And when I first became a Christian, I, I was really miserly when it came to money. I was what they'd call back then a skinflint. <laughs> um, but then I started feeling these urges to be generous. Generous. to to help other people out with what I had, to be less kind of holding on. And and it was the Spirit writing God's law in my heart, changing my desires to be more like God's desires. And and so when I have urges to do good, I have to pay attention to that and and discern whether that's the Spirit guiding me, telling me uh, to do that thing. If it's a big matter, a big decision in life, I'll discuss it with other people to get their input to help me discern my motives and if this is in fact the Spirit. And then if I sense it is the Spirit, I've got a choice to make. I can be too busy or preoccupied or afraid and so just ignore the Spirit and go on with life? Or am I going to act on what I hear the Spirit saying to me? A third way that the Spirit guides me Um, is when I do something wrong. Maybe I snap at my kids, or I walk right past when Ann needs my help, and the Spirit is like a quiet little whistle blowing in my heart. And I can ignore that whistle, or I can listen and and turn around and apologize and do the, the right thing. Or that whistle might come through the challenge or rebuke of another person. One time when I was in college, um, two female friends of mine uh, one day sat me down and they called me on the way they saw me treating them and some of their other female friends. And and they challenged me to change the way I was uh, treating the women in my life. And and in that, I could hear the Spirit calling me to change. And here's the thing, the, the Spirit doesn't sound condemning. He doesn't heap guilt. Instead, he gives a sweet sense that what he's calling us to do, regardless of how hard it may be, is actually the way of peace and goodness and life and maturity. It can be terrifying when you look at the change that's required, but when you look at the Spirit who's calling you, you can see it's actually the way of goodness and life. All right, so the Spirit guides. The the second thing the Spirit does is empower us. Because when the Spirit tells us to do something, He offers us the power to get it done. But we don't discover this power until we actually step out and do the thing the Spirit's calling us to do. And just like when Jesus told Peter, come on, get out of the boat, come walk to me on the water. Peter didn't know if he could do it until he got out of the boat. <laughs> the empowerment comes as we step out in response to the Spirit's guidance. In the case of Peter on the lake, he walked a little and and then he started to sink, didn't he? That's the way the journey is. Sometimes God miraculously and and instantaneously transforms an aspect of our life. Other times the the power comes in dribs and drabs. Like learning to walk, we fall down a lot along the way But over time, we do make progress and the change is real and permanent. The the Christian life is not a sprint. It's a marathon and often the changes take a while. But God's Spirit gives us enough empowerment to take the next step forward. The question is just, are we willing to take it? Which is really the question, do we want to go back and live in the old age? Or... Are we living into the age to come, which the Spirit is leading us into? If you've ever moved, you've experienced this dynamic. When Ann and I moved here from Pennsylvania, once we knew we were coming, even though the the move date was still over a month away, guess what we started investing our imagination and energy into? We didn't plant a garden that spring in Pennsylvania, we didn't buy furniture for the house there. We, we didn't invest uh, in making new friends or in finding new activities for our kids to do there. No, what did we do? We, we started asking questions about Yorktown. Where are the grocery stores? Um, does anyone know a good doctor? Uh, what furniture would we need for the new house? What soccer team would we sign Josiah up for? our orientation, our motivation, our goals, we're we're set on making a life for ourselves in the new, not in the old. Because the old was passing away and the new was our future. That's why we let the Spirit lead us. He's our guide for living life in the new age. And He offers the power to make sure that we succeed. So let's be a church that walks in the Spirit.